Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Barnaby Furness was born and raised in Philadelphia and lives and works in New York City. Barnaby earned his BFA at the School of Visual Arts and his MFA at Columbia University. He's had solo shows at Marion Bosky Gallery starting in 2002. And he's also had solo shows at the Contemporary Art Museum in St. Louis, Victoria Miro in London, the MCA in Denver, Anthony Meyer in San Francisco, amongst many others. He's had tons of group shows, too numerous to list, but highlights would be the MCA Tucson, the Frist in Nashville, the Albright Knox, the Warhol Museum, you get the idea. His work has been covered in all the art publications, and he's in the collections of the Albright Knox, the MCA Chicago, the MCA in Los Angeles, SF MoMA, the Whitney, and more. I met up with Barnaby at his solo show, which just finished up at Bosky Gallery, titled Frontier Ballads, and we talked about his early graffiti days in Philadelphia, how he found a physical approach to painting, flirting with jail time, and much more. Here's our conversation. kids the other day it's like you're essentially in therapy already why don't you just get a therapist too <laughs> it's like art school basically is, is therapy right um and uh the uh i mean back in the day like talking was what you made art for right yeah it was like a it was the, the point ice, was the talking <laughs> yeah exactly yeah like here witness my brain and then we could talk about like what i'm thinking about in <laughs> yeah. relation to that instead of just like talking to you yeah yeah so, well, we both grew up in Pennsylvania. Really? So, but I was in the rival town. Pittsburgh? I grew up in Pittsburgh, yeah. Is it really a rival town? I guess no, it only is. football. <laughs> yeah. But, you it's know. so far away. <laughs> it is really far. People don't, people unfamiliar with Pennsylvania don't realize how far that trip it's is. It's really far. It I is. mean, your drive to Penn State must be seven hours from here, right? No, That's it's actually. Halfway. No, it's under four. Under four. Okay. Just under four <laughs> if you do it right. Yeah, if you. A little heavy on the foot. Well, I leave foot. really early in the morning before traffic. Too. Yeah. If you leave in traffic, you add an hour. hour and a half to get out of this, yeah. just to get out of the exactly. city. Yeah. But if when you wake up at like five and leave, it's amazing how quick you can get through the city. Yeah. It's like those movies. Like, right. Uh, I am, or was the Will Smith one where it's a, it's like the empty New York City. It kind of feels like that. The legend one. I don't think I've seen that. It's just like an empty, you know, New York that doesn't happen, but it happens overnight. But yeah, so how was Philly growing up? Um, Philly was rough. <laughs> Were you in the suburbs or the cities? No, I was in. Uh, I grew up in this area called Germantown. So it's like, uh, like the New York City equivalent would be like, I don't know. It was, it was in the city, but not in the big building part of the city. Not it wasn't like downtown. Street, not no, not that. No, so it. it, it um, I think Germantown was like one of the first suburbs that they built around Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So it was an old suburb, but it's well within the boundaries of the city itself. Um, it, I mean, my upbringing was actually kind of amazing. It was amazing in many ways. Um, but uh, I mean, basically I grew up in this, like essentially it was kind of like a commune. It was like all of my mom and my dad and their friends who had all met each other through political organizations. They were very sort of lefty activists and, mm-hmm. um, just they, you know, my mom bought, my mom and dad bought one of these old, huge houses, you know, that had been the country 120 years ago. Uh, it had like nine bedrooms in it, and so they just there was like, I think four or five couples at one point, and um, and I was like sort of the first kid that was born into the house. Um, so they're like super idealistic, and they, you know, after after working hard in the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movement. Um, you know, they, there was like certain things they wanted to do. They had like kind of a little bit of a manifesto, but they were like, we're going to raise our kids in a multi-ethnic situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Germantown at that point was almost 50-50 black and white mix. Um, uh, I was born in 1973. It was, the area had been heavily Irish. Um, basically, the, that whole area of Germantown was all sort of like blue-collar workers who worked in the factories down by the railroad tracks, so it's sort of you know on one edge of Germantown, <clears throat> and uh, 
you know, then the 80s hit. <laughs> well, first there's like White Flight happened, and then the 80s hit, and then Crack hit, and then like I basically got to watch like sort of this amazing kind of 60s idealism meet like what happens when the crack epidemic hit. Right. And it was just like, a, it was a major reality check. Well, how old um, were you at that point? Well, 1980, I was uh, seven. Seven years old. So, um, that's a lot to take in. The, young <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden, like we left the car doors open so our windows wouldn't get smashed with like everyone, like on the whole block, you oh. just walk down the street and there'd be notes like, please don't smash my window. The door's open. Right. And it's like, got that bad. <laughs> and then people were, everyone was getting robbed. You know, we got bars put on the windows. Um, the uh, the commune, which was an amazing place to grow up. I mean, I basically had like four sets of parents, and I would just stand by the front door. And if anyone was going anywhere, I would just like take me, and I would just be t- you know had like all these parents, yeah. I had all this attention. Um, uh, then some of the other couples started having kids, and at that point, it was just it was getting too complicated, and everyone kind of broke up. I think, and a lot of people just like got out of that neighborhood yeah. and moved up, right. moved out to safer places. Um, so. Uh, and I think my parents got divorced in there too, somewhere around, I was like 10. So that it was like this amazing, nurturing, great thing. And the block was very organized. And I had like, you know, I went um, like multiracial upbringing essentially. And then somewhere around 1983, my parents split up, the commune broke down and the crack epidemic hit. <laughs> and, uh, and it was rough. And then that was like some, right around, I turned 10 is when I realized that like, um, that I was, I think I realized that what it meant, I was white. I started to feel very yeah. out of place. Right. Um, the neighborhood went completely black. Um, there had been a tradition, I mean, there had been like sort of gang violence for years, like the Irish kids and the black kids would like always were like tussling and I had like red hair and um, a funny, a funny <laughs> name, <laughs> a funny name. And so um, I, and I was in the local public school, which is essentially like a prison. It was built in like 1970. It had no windows. It had uh, like the Panopticon. It had all the central offices and library were in the middle and all and opened into all the classrooms. So it be really observed jail like from the middle. <laughs> yeah, so you could see like the vice principal at his desk and he could see you all the way around with no outside windows. And they had something called an open classroom, which was 90 kids and two teachers. And uh, it was, you know, it was just a dark, Jeez. dark well, place to live. How did creativity crack into yeah. the egg? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was like the drawler kid. I, that's what I did. Um, and I was that kid who just drew in the corner all the time. Yeah. Um, and my father was an architect, but he sort of wanted to be an artist. But um, he's from this sort of old school Quaker family, so they were like, that doesn't compute. You know, he had to pick a profession is what they told him. So he picked architecture. Um, but he had like paintings around and stuff. And I, uh, he had like Picasso prints on the walls and things like that. And I was always very curious as to, you know, like what's going on there. Um, and, uh, he gave me oil paints and canvases and stuff like that. He was really encouraging. Yeah. I mean, he like set me up with like big paintings when I was like, you know, third grade. And I would just like, pretty cool. It's kind of what I'm doing with my son now. Like I just have a stack of canvases for him when he comes in. He just like lets it rip. Yeah. And uh, that's what my dad did for me. He hooked me up that way. It's cool to see the freedom, right? That they just go at it. I mean, any size. He has no problem scaling up (laughs) at all. Yeah, he's not. The pressure isn't there yet. Yeah. He's just like, Dad, I need bigger brushes for this. Yeah. More more paint, please. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I have some amazing stuff that he makes. He comes into the studio and makes me ideas. And we pin them to the walls. yeah. Yeah. That's cool. They're not, they're perfectly good yeah. ideas. Too, you know? Right. Like a squirrel eating a snail, dad. I'm like, that's, <laughs> did you about that? <laughs> did, uh, in the Panopticon, did you have an art wing there? Um, no, there was no, uh, art. There was no art room. Um, there was almost no supervision, however. So like I could just, you know, it was those old desks that had the sort of slot underneath and I would just like bring my sketchbook in leave it open and just pull it out and work on my lap. Yeah. And basically at, at John B. Kelly school, the name of the school, like if you weren't causing trouble, you were doing a good job. Yeah. So they were happy. They were just, no news is good. News. They didn't have to worry about me doing something bad. <laughs> right. Um, so was it also like capital socially, like people thought like, Oh, he's the guy who can draw stuff. Uh, a little, I think also like I had my parents, you know, 
college. I, I mean, you know, they read to me when I grew oh, yeah, <laughs> growing yeah. up. Like I was, I was able to do well in that school. I mean, it wasn't hard. I read all the time. Yeah. Basically, that's what I did all day. And uh, so I got, my grades were good for that school. Yeah, but I mean more so like your peers. It sounds like a rough oh, school. Yeah. Like if you're acing math tests, I mean, did you get pummeled by people? <laughs> no, it was mostly, uh, it was mostly after school. And it was mostly like the, the middle school, which is like the, the school that this school fed into, but it would all come, they would come, oh, yeah. the big kids. And like, that was, that's where it all went down. It was like the run home kind of scenario. Right. Um, They're like, this is what you're in for when you <laughs> yeah. get to our level. Oh man, they take, <laughs> they just take your stuff basically is what would happen. Like take your hat or yeah. um, if you have a ball, like a basketball or something, all that would just go. Um, the... The interesting thing about the school, and this is sort of where the other creative thing comes in, is that so there's no windows on the school, but there's all these walls, these amazing walls, and like the the entry doors had these slabs of concrete, and then these big blank walls, and uh, that was the '80s, so the graffiti was like in full effect. Yeah. You'd come to school every day, and there'd be like some new insane thing, um, and that's that's where my creativity really started to get. I mean, I got really into graffiti Yeah. as a, you know, fourth grade, I was like doing my thing. And that's, that eventually became my sort of currency in the neighborhood. It's right. like, he's like, Oh, he's a really good graffiti artist. And I would do like guys jackets and like oh, the really tough guys, like we were doing like <laughs> making amulets or they would ask for pe- you know, pieces in their books or something like that. So that was sort of, that was sort of my ticket. Mm-hmm. And were you, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining kind of like Houdini, and like, you know, like that kind of, I, uh, I had all these systems for getting in. Eventually, like I got out of school, I, I got it tested into like the magnet school mm-hmm. that was downtown. And, um, and that's when things got a lot better for me. Uh, but the, uh, I did have like roots to get to the bus, to get to the train. Like I was always happy when it rained cause I have an umbrella and I could hide my face. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was a trick I used for graffiti too in like bad neighborhoods. I was I always would go out writing in in light rain because I could use the umbrella mm-hmm. and I could sneak. You know, it's basically a disguise. Yeah. I could go any neighborhood that way. An accepted disguise, right? <laughs> not you know, um, not too shady. And if you got the rain, if you have an umbrella in the rain, you're like at least organized enough. You're probably not a bad character, right? Right. <laughs> you're responsible, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, and you know, so the graffiti thing kind of became about like. One, it was super mysterious, like who's doing this stuff at night, um, and uh, I just it just really grabbed me. It just seemed like this like alternate reality that mm-hmm. people were living in, which kind of is like if you're a graffiti writer, like you are kind of like a night walker, superhero, yeah. espionage person, or something. Right. Um, was it the whole package too? You were into like hip hop and uh, or rap, and yeah, break dancing and well, all the other stuff we grew up with. I um, I did not do the break dancing, <laughs> but I didn't have to because I had one of the legs of the stool covered, right? Um, and I loved I loved rap music, so um, that was good. And uh, you know, uh, it wasn't until so I went to this like magnet sort of school downtown that had an art room. Um, and that's where I met like some of my, that's where I started meeting white, like white kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, up until then, all my kids, all my best friends were all black. Most of them, I was a safety. You know what those are? They're like, they're yeah, like yeah. kids on patrol. Yep. You're like in charge of policing the intersections. And um, all my best friends from that time who were black, like only one of them is still actually alive right Jeez. now. And, uh, I didn't realize, like, you know, everyone's talking about white privilege right now. Like, I didn't realize just how hard it was. I mean, I just thought it was normal. But, like, two were in jail. One got shot and drug thing. And, like, um, we were all at the same place. We were all, like, captains in the safety patrol getting good grades. We were all, like, the good kids. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, it even follows to this day, like, with the graffiti thing. Like, I had a crew that I wrote with. They were sort of like a gang. And like they would send me in to steal the paint because no one would care. I could just, as a white right. kid with red hair, I could just walk in and fill my bag and walk out. Whereas if they stepped in the door, they were like, on, you know, they're under surveillance right. all the time. Um, and it's like even some of the graffiti writers, some of whom are still known, this guy M and um, M, who's kind of got his own thing going online now, kind of famous. 
like talent level they were like way way higher than I was but because of the <laughs> obstacles that the society placed in their way like our paths just diverged like here I am as like an artist and yeah and you know international artist and like it's this fancy white box land that we work in it's um, like that uh chris rock bit about uh, the dentist do you know about no that? like he's like i live in alpine new jersey which is like this you know yeah one of the richest neighborhoods in the country and he's like i'm one of the most famous people in the entire world and you know i've done all these things and he's like and um you know i'm a black comedian and my neighbor is a white guy and he's a dentist <laughs> yeah <laughs> like he had to fly to where like other people just walked up yeah to. exactly it's just like depressing it's hilarious when he tells that story but. yeah well that new york times uh article just came out on like they charted you know where kids black kids from affluent families ended up yeah. economically and it was still like way below way below yeah. their counterparts right um and that's that's the legit so you <laughs> were super legit thing yeah you were seeing that firsthand it 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 never failed. Everyone knew. Yeah. I mean, all my black friends who I wrote graffiti with, they're all like, we got an ace in the hole. We got the white guy who can like just me walking around with them gave them access to neighborhoods that they right they wouldn't have been comfortable in. Um, it, the funny thing is, they gave me access to neighborhoods that I couldn't come into right. either. Yeah, yeah. So we had like a deal going. It was very kind of on the table, like right. what what it meant to be white or what it meant to be a black graffiti writer versus a white graffiti. And then when I started getting arrested for writing graffiti, like. I was, I got arrested three times. I had like my locker raided in high school. Like I had my house raided at one point. Um, my friends would never have been able to walk from any of those. Yeah. But the police and the Philadelphia Anti-Graffiti Task Force did everything they could to keep me out of the system. Isn't that crazy how like aggressive they are against graffiti? Where yeah, now it's like you yeah. Know, now you can go buy. It. Now they'll pay you to go tag a building to yeah. make it hip, so the rent can go up in Brooklyn. <laughs> do they do that? They do. I mean, I'm still blown away when I go to like art supply stores and there's like a graffiti section. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it takes all the fun out of it. But yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 uh, they. I mean, I should. I I should have been juvenile. I went to like my. I had a bench warrant out for I me mean, for a while. I went to trial with my mom with like pot on me and a bowl in my sock and mm -hmm. I just got in front of the judge and literally like the pot I had stuffed in my pants just slid down my pants <laughs> and caught in the cuff of my jeans while I'm standing there in court and my mom was just like what's going on and I'm just like oh, uh but anyway but that's the kind of shit you can get away yeah you got out of it <laughs> they just let me roll and uh so did they, you when you graduated high school yeah did you were you still doing graffiti like street stuff no uh or did you decide? I got into, I, like I said, I, I walked up to the line of like getting put into the system, which is basically, as we know, if you're black, it means like that's the end of your yeah, life. Right. Yeah. Um, my mother picked me up the last time I got arrested. It was like in the middle of the night, just like three in the morning. He picked me up at this random police station in uh, West Philadelphia and started crying. <laughs> it was just like, I don't know what to do. Um, and I, from that, I was just like, all right. Then I just stopped. Yeah. Um, plus the people that I'd been writing graffiti with, it was like, they were all, they knew I had gotten arrested and the anti-graffiti task force was like, you know, trying to press me for names. So all the graffiti writers out there that I knew were all worried that I was going to turn them in. Yeah. So the world, Philadelphia got really dangerous for me. Um, I'd like go out the back door of my house and through a yard to the bus stop. Oh, and, uh, the, the, the drug dealing, like a lot of the, Graffiti guys started getting in that, and it just got to be a really gnarly, very dangerous place. Not to mention, like I had all these nice white friends from the met, from my my high school and my middle school, and uh, who were like dabbling and selling pot and things like that. And I had this one guy who would rob like four of my friends and like duct tape their faces and took all their pot and their money at gunpoint. So <laughs> the uh, the city got really harsh, um, and. I but just, all the while you're getting good grades in school, like you're, yeah. you're studying and well, not the yeah. I got good grades in school, and I, was, I went to like the creative and performing arts high school, yeah. like the, right. the sort of fame school, and um, I was really good at art. It's almost like a double life you had going. Yeah, it felt that way. Uh, that second arrest when my mom was like, "That's it. I don't know what to do." Was the end, and that was somewhere around sixteen or seventeen. Um, fortunately, I did maintain my 
grades at school and yeah. my painting and all that. And uh, you had something to fall back on. I had something which is not that again. My friends did not. Yeah, I still had like another route. So I dropped yeah. the graffiti thing and went that way. And um, my best friend, this guy Charlie White, who's actually head of Carnegie Mellon School of Art right yeah. now, um, his dad lived here in New York City. Um, he taught at Juilliard, and we came up to visit and stay with him like one summer night or something, and his dad took us to art galleries. Like I think yeah. we went to like OK Harris or something right. like that on, on Broadway. West Broadway. Yeah, we did yeah, the West yeah. Broadway galleries, <laughs> and um, I had never seen anything like that. Yeah. Um, Do you remember the first show you saw? Like or the first uh, thing that like hit you? There was a, a Boslitz painting oh, show nice. at Mary Boone at the old Mary Boone yeah, yeah. on West Broadway. It's like, um, what the hell is this, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I... I think the Philadelphia Inquirer had run big news story on Keith Haring yeah. um, in their magazine. And I was like, he was a graffiti artist who's painting himself for 40. And I'm like, let's go do that. Right, right. So he was a really, he was like the reason I came to New York City. And then we did that visit and I saw the galleries and I was like, wait, there's a whole thing here. Uh, there's the a whole path. Language. Was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then my friend Charlie and I like, just like, we're coming, you know. So yeah. we just like got all serious about getting into art school. So SVA was a SVA. place that you were interested in? SVA gave money, some scholarships. Yeah. So we both moved up together and went to SVA. It's not, I feel like Philly to New York, I mean, New York's a bigger place, obviously, but it's, you know, you, you had the groundwork there to be able to survive in the city or, or handle you, it, right? Yeah. Um, was it overwhelming? It was. Uh, the money thing was didn't really have any money. Yeah. Um, well, different times. Well, I guess wasn't it was the early 90s so it wasn't too bad yet no i mean when i remember we were like we each had to pay five we you know budget for our apartment was a thousand dollars a month um so we had like a um, a studio um about this size yeah. <laughs> for a thousand dollars a month it just seemed like an astronomical amount coming from philadelphia where right. you, you know my mother's house that she bought in 1971 for seventeen thousand just sold like a month ago for $26,000. <laughs> so Philadelphia real estate, like you, you know, it's just free basically. You think that's cheap too? go to Pittsburgh. Really? I mean, you can have space like giant loft for like the rent is like nothing basically. It's crazy. Or at least, you know, my yeah. friends who are still there, I have a couple of friends who are still there. One has this giant, like 3000 square foot studio and he pays like hundreds of dollars in rent. Wow, something Which, to be said. I think of Philadelphia all the time. Like it's as far as a place to live because it really is. It's an hour, two hours away. There's culture. You got music. You got art. Restaurants are good, and yeah. um, <clears throat> all the things that I ran away from, screaming, <laughs> in in 1990, 91, um, are all better. Have all improved greatly. I mean, there's still like that insane entrenched poverty. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, stubborn. Uh, but downtown is like a viable place. And when I was there, the whole downtown area just shuttered yeah. at six. And everyone got on the trains and got back out of the suburbs. Um, well, the, you have the internet and food network to thank to some of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, My brother moved back there and he's, you know, it's like she's, his wife has a professor, you know, she's a professor at Penn and she's, and it's like, that's more more than enough. Yeah. Um, the sort of struggles that go on here, you know, they you know, for the most part, they don't have to deal with that that particular concern. Right. And that's, you know, I have students who ask, well, how do I move to the city? And I, I, part of me is like, I don't know. Like when I moved to the city, my first rent was like $600 a month. And I had a huge studio in my, the apartment I lived in. Yeah. That's not happening anymore. Yeah. And I don't exactly know the answer to how you afford the loan payments and the studio and the apartment and all that stuff. I mean, if you really, you know, if you're really up for it, you'll do it. You'll figure out a way. Yeah. But it's not as, you know, it can, it's not as easy. Not that it ever was easy, but, yeah. you know, and then some of these other towns, like people go to Detroit or something and you can have a huge studio for nothing. Yeah. And I mean, I think with the internet and with, you know, possibility, you know, self-promotional yeah. possibilities, maybe it doesn't need to happen. Um, right. But what you do need, I mean, what I tell students is like, you do need a bunch of friends with like-minded Right. And, you know, and who Community. are ambitious. <laughs> yeah. Because um, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, you can't do it by yourself. Yeah. It's just too, it's a difficult, solitary road. 
Yeah. That loneliness in the best situation. Yeah. yeah, it'll strangle you. The loneliness, sort of the, the the sort of quiet. You know. Yeah. Sometimes you you don't even have to be in New York. It's almost like you don't even have to be connected, but just the noise yeah. makes you feel like yeah, I'm part of this rhythm. Um, yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Like you feel like oh, I'm, uh, I know I'm I'm not doing it right now, or I'm not connected to this or that or whatever, but I'm right next to it. So this is where it happens. I am where it happens. Yeah. Which that counts for a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's what I always worry about losing if I was to say move to move to Philadelphia or yeah, something. Yeah, or like, upstate. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I just feel like I wasn't in the middle of things. Um, and that might cause me some anxiety. Right. Um, I'm sure it would balance out to the anxiety we feel of like just commuting on a <laughs> yeah. day-to-day basis. Yeah. The crap you have to deal with. Yeah. Just <laughs> well, especially when you have kids too. That's like the the wild card of it all. You yeah. know, when you go visit people in the suburbs and they drive to Costco and park the car and <clears> get groceries and drive it right into their driveway, you're like, wow, that seems amazing yeah i think that does i don't know i mean we spend summers out of town mm-hmm. for the most part and uh by the end of that we're like get me out of this yeah, car right um you just need a little bit and then you're ready to go back yeah <laughs> <laughs> i want if i was to move someplace i'd have to be somewhere i could walk yeah so um, no no la for you no <laughs> do you go to la often i used to i haven't been in a few years um it's you know it's like you know, famously a nice place to visit. Yeah, right. <laughs> I could really get into it for a week or two. Um, but the no walking thing is weird, right? Like yeah, you can't walk just, anywhere. there's too much space in between everybody. Yeah. Um, you do get used to just the sort of, like you said, a kind of rhythm of interaction, interacting with people. Right. It's just, um, there's a complexity to it that um, I miss after about six weeks or something. Yeah. <laughs> I start to miss it. Yeah. I start to, 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 uh, ponder my own existence kind of right um <clears throat> so how did you so how was sva i mean it was what, good did you just get up and run in and start making some paintings or were you still bringing the street in um i was not i actually completely disavowed the whole graffiti thing i didn't tell anyone about it um for years uh although it does instruct much of my sort of practice my painting practice um i um, I got at that time it was like that was the bad those were one of those bad painting cycles it was yeah, like yeah. no painting was bad and it was like all that conceptual art and like the best artist was Matthew, Matthew Barney and just started making his um, installation performances boy that and was so, a lonely time for painters wasn't it <laughs> it was like, hopeless what am I doing right now like am I missing this right giant boat that everyone seems to be getting on so I, I went ahead and just I was making sculpture in the painting building um the, the painting instructors that they had in the in the school were the sort of they were they were older guys they were like abstract expressionists and um, but the sculpture building had like all the cool artists right. <laughs> you know had younger had a much younger vibe and um, I was a tech uh, in the sculpture building so I kind of was making sculpture I was making like conceptual sculpture yeah like I would call it like cabinet making sculpture was it <laughs> was it figurative in nature or just no it was like just sort of, formal. It was, it was sort of, uh, it was like post-minimalist conceptualism, you know, um, the, you know, it was like kind of tweaking Judd, make, trying to find like a cozy Donald Judd. Yeah. Um, that's sort of what I was doing. Um, and it was sort of vaguely unfulfilling because <laughs> right. I really was that kid who just did the drawings all the time. That, that's a pretty big leap from like yeah. street work to like conceptual yeah. Well, I like Judean sculpture. I like the power tools. Like I was really into routers. <laughs> yeah, um, and that I was sort of, you know, like I said, I was making like cabinets. Um, I actually got like honors for the work I made, um, but I just never really bought that it was what I was supposed to do. Right. Um, the you know SVA was great. I mean, it wasn't that expensive. The academics were minimal. <laughs> right. Uh, it's one of those places that you can make, you can, you, you have to make it yourself. You have to make that school. You have to kind of, you have to push yourself to achieve in it because no one's really asking anything of you. You get out of it what you put in. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot, which of, can be hard for a lot of <clears throat> young students because New York is a siren. There's a lot of stuff going on. That's right. A lot of people came to New York to party. Right. So like they just kind of disappeared. Um, but, you know, you did have, like, all these amazing instructors who coming through. Um, galleries? No Museum. galleries, not yet. Oh, that you hadn't, doing that yet? That hadn't, that hadn't happened. Isn't that uh, amazing that you could go to school here and just not not 
sort of do that yet. You're just like, well, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think I would. I mean, the gallery, there was no young galleries. The young galleries sort of, this rate, I mean, Marianne was actually one of them, didn't really start popping up until the mid 90s yeah. after I got out of school. And it was like Casey Kaplan, Friedrich Petzl, Marianne, um, Gavin Brown, like that generation of galleries yeah. hadn't, they just started showing down lower Soho. Um, Stefano Basilico is another one. I worked for him. For oh, yeah. Remember that place on Broom? Maybe <clears throat> or Wooster? It was on uh, Mercer. That That's lower right. Mercer. Yeah. Uh, I worked there for years. Um, uh, Good times? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> um, the best thing of this, well, SVA, I've like met all my friends who are still my friends, many of whom are in the art world still. Um, I my best friend again, Charlie White, who I've like been like sort of hanging on his coattails for years now, got a job working for Laurie Simmons, the mm -hmm. photographer, yeah. uh, who's married to Carol Dunham. And so he was working for Laurie um, and then decided to go to grad school. He went out west and I took his job working mm -hmm. for Laurie. Laurie and I didn't really have chemistry, but Tip, uh, Carol Dunham and I got on really well. So after SVA, basically I was his assistant and he got me jobs working for these young galleries and also print shops. I was working for this place called Two Palms Press for a while, oh, yeah. making editions. Um, so that kind of helped you get the, a bit the, of the community aspect of like the, the art world. The Dunham thing was key. Without yeah. meeting him, without having him as a mentor, I don't know. I don't know if it would have ever, if the, if the planets would have aligned. Because they really kind of have to align. Yeah, they It's do. like a thing that locks, you know, it's... It's like um, a puzzle that oh, it's got to fit a certain way. Yeah, or like a combination lock. You yeah. know, like you got to get the right numbers in a, in a row. Um, so what he offered me was like, one, he was like old and established and had a family and like lived in the city like it was normal. Yeah, right. <laughs> like that's just what you do. You like, know? oh, you can do this. Yeah, you have a life here. Um, and that was hugely valuable because it gave me something to like, look, this is possible. Yeah. Um, and then he also like unlocked the mysteries of how to be in a room by yourself all the time which is something no one really can train you at. You can work in, in, in school on your own, but like being in a room all by yourself with just you day after day is, is not for the, it's not for everyone. <laughs> no, there's an art to that. Yeah. And yeah, so some he, people can't. He just had it. like a structure and he treated the whole thing like, like spiritually. and um, He had routines and like all these things that I just patterned myself on. And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, through working with these galleries and stuff, I got to kind of see the other side of the desk. And yeah. um, he, uh, Carol Dunham, started teaching up at Columbia. Their, their MFA program was sort of resurgent in the late 90s. And he was like, oh, he's like, I think it's kind of going on up there. And I applied and then got to Columbia. Um, and he uh, was teaching you there? He was a professor there, yeah. Um, so I'm sure he certainly helped with my application process <laughs> in some way. Uh, and then there I met like, you know, all these really great, it was really good time yeah. to be there. It's a good and, connected place. Mm, yeah. A lot of great people. And so I was, that's, you know, that's where I finally hit on what felt like my work. Right. And at that point you started making paintings more tuned to what you're doing now, maybe? Or? I started making watercolors. Yeah. Basically, these paintings, but, right. you know, eight On and a half by 11, like Kara Walker had shown those cutout silhouettes about two or three years before yeah. that. And that was like the big, that kind of rang my bell, that work. And I'm like, um, there's something about history. I think, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, Philadelphia is like half of it's like a museum, you know, like there's yeah. whole districts where like people walk around dressed like Ben Franklin. And right. like every park was like a site of a major battle scene. Liberty Bells all over the place. Liberty Flags, Bell, yeah. I mean, bit. I mean, there's like this uh, places where you go walking with the dog and stuff that had like still had like you know walls built where yeah. they would like you know line up and right. and that always was like very caught my imagination. I think I went to like these Quaker summer camps too, where it was like in Shenandoah River Valley. We'd be like canoeing down the Antietam or something like that. Yeah. And I, for me, it was always like picturing the battles. You know, right. they were they were always vivid for me. Um, and so when I saw Kara's silhouettes, I was like, I was like history, you know, um, that's when I kind of got into this idea about making pictures about the civil war. One, it was like a sort of white guy answer to what Kara, Kara's work was about. Right. Um, and, uh, and then the, that's sort of where the violent thing started. It was in school. Um, the story I always tell is like 
basically spilled water on a sheet of paper I was working at and it kind of splattered and I took like I had a red on my brush and I just touched it to the edge of the splatter and, and it moves the, the red just went shot through yeah. and I was like that's it <laughs> yeah. and uh, that was like sort of the eureka moment and um, happy accident and I was off to the races you know what I liked about it it was like I wasn't trying to draw a picture of blood or render blood it was like kind of actually kind of happening it yeah. felt like a real thing not me drawing a real thing but a real thing um and that's sort of been the at the core of my practice ever since and really born out of accident or yeah you know process as opposed to you know you're looking at certain i mean were you looking at certain painters who were working that way and then or like i sometimes i think when i see your work i think a little bit of stedman just because of the movement of it yeah huh. and i like i didn't know if that was something that was on your radar if you were really into or the i mean the people in my fire circle were like, like henry darger's work yeah. just started being sh- shown i remember it got like really it was everywhere there yeah as soon the cover as of our forum and yeah. like all these artists writing love letters oh, about yeah. it and um that like the whole outsider artist thing i got really into one because these are i like all these outside american artists because they weren't concerned with modernism yeah they're just concerned with their sort of vision right and that's sort of that was like my that was that was very important to me um you know like i said i was working for carol dunham so he was at that point he was throwing lots of paint around and i always sort of looked at his work um it took me like four years of making sort of copies of his work to get past it um i was and um, I took this class up at Columbia by this guy, Jonathan Crary, called uh, Techniques of the Observer. Mm-hmm. There's this book um, where he charts the history of art, not through the sort of, you know, modernist sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, story, but through spectacle and the shaping of vision through history. Yeah. And um, so he basically, he basically just like charted like <clears throat> how our eyeballs have been conditioned to be sold to <laughs> yeah. to be fed information to make us buy things um, and he would bring paintings in for that and what I liked about that is it just like it, it was a, another history that wasn't concerned with modernism because modernism is like this huge albatross for everyone who's right. trying to make paintings and just like hanging over your head yeah you know? I mean Robert Ryman's like white you know those, those are like the last paintings you know um, yeah. and what I took from this was just sort of permission not to care about modernism anymore get lost in what you're interested in yeah right? uh the my motto is like i just want to have an ex- i want to have an experience like yeah I'm sick of all this like critical think i was really into critical thinking and all the i love the reading and everything but um in the end you know it's like i just want to have an what what does it take to just have an experience express myself you know which was like like a like farting in a sephora <laughs> to right. say something like that <laughs> beautiful <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and uh, that became sort of, you know, that was the, that was like the, the most sort of punk rock thing you could say at that yeah. time in the, in art. I mean, the, uh, well, it feels like you migrated that critical um, sort of conceptual approach into just ideas in the work instead of art history. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you, and you found this process of, of moving paint, like water-based paint around that yeah. was like doing real things that you could connect to this experience of history. Yeah. Like I was looking for like analogs to the, to the things I was trying to depict, not, yeah. not execute. You know, I wasn't trying to execute them perfectly. I was just trying to find processes that were as much like the thing I was trying to make as possible. Right. Um, so that's when the, the blood, the whole blood idea hit. Um, and, uh, you know, they started giving away syringes at the drugstores those mm-hmm. years. So I started, I got those and started filling those with paint and I could like, I would have these days where I would set up all my men, you know, with their guns. And then I could have like the blood day where I would just wade in with my syringes blasting and I could kind of have like a Jackson Pollock day yeah. <laughs> making fairly plausible streams of blood flying all over the place. And, um, the other sort of thing I was sort of deciding that like modernism was really cool and interesting. It's like this rich source of process and materials um and so i started looking at say jackson pollock you know like thinking about those those web paintings those ladder paintings is sort of like really interesting way to paint you know bushes or something like that Mm -hmm. and so uh all these processes sort of just sort of brought them back into making pictures about figuration 
Well, how early were you doing the uh, the concerts and like bringing music? Because that's a real light yeah. phenomenon, which is a nice counterpoint to blood. Yeah. Because it's still, you don't really have humans without blood pumping through and you don't really have visuals without light hitting something. And I think those paintings were really mm-hmm. about that. Or for me, I really zero in on the light and what that experience, how it's shaped by the light that you're yeah. seeing. And the action of it, because it's always moving. And, you know, it's a lot of smoke and and light and movement going on yeah well i mean you know so i you know i guess the first big battle scene paintings are always like you know the sort of describing them as like blockbuster paintings like mm-hmm. what would a painting have to be to be a blockbuster i was very concerned with like cinema and like uh video games and things like that uh so i'm sort of attracted to these sort of spectacular moments i mean like what i love about painting is how still it is yeah and how quiet it is uh and you know it amuses me to no end like the more stuff you have flying around the painting the stiller it gets right because it's a freeze frame basically so i'm just like chasing that sort of idea of stillness and it's led me into more and more frenetic subjects and so the 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 rock concert idea came about um well i always listen to music on earphones anyway while i'm working and i was like why don't i just make a picture about what i'm listening to yeah. Just as a way of closing, again, this idea of a closing the loop or having a real experience. Right. Um, so that's really where those those paintings were sort of born of that. I think I was asked by the Armory show. They used to put out a catalog. They still may. They yeah, artists yeah. to do that. The so, cover artists, yeah. Yeah, so I was given that. And they're you know, they like, it had to be something about New York, New York. Sorry. So I was like, I decided to make pictures of all the bands that I moved to New York because they were here. <laughs> yeah. They're not here anymore, but you right. know, they'll have underground. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, that's really where it started. It was just kind of a love letter kind of idea. Yeah, uh, it's n- it's a nice counterpoint though to, to all the like the violence, yeah, the sort of audio attack and visual attack that you get. Yeah, but it's it's more I don't know. It comes under the cloak a lot of time. Like it, those paintings look like metal, you know, yeah. or like hard. They look like hard. Yeah, because they, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, a lot of them have like tons of stacks, like Marshall stacks. Marshall, like it looks yeah. like it's yeah, you know, brutal. And well, that's under the guise of goth or like, or heaviness or darkness, but it's really entertainment. Yeah. Which it's is kind a, of a nice yeah. duality. I mean, the best, my favorite one is this one of Slayer. Um, just cause it, I mean, it amuses me to no end that these paintings don't make any noise, <laughs> but right. they're like all about noise. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that was, that's, you know, I, I, to this day, I mean, these paintings in this show are sort of about that too. Like he, I like to think about painting in terms of like rock and roll or something like that. Yeah. Like what it's like rock and roll is just not going anywhere. It, it always is getting killed and being brought back. It's like painting sort of the same way. It's um, as long as you can find style or sort of a, an authentic style, it's sort of, it's vital. Yeah. Um, uh, like this name of the show is going to, I think it's called frontier ballads, but I was really inspired by like the pet sounds album that oh, yeah. Beach Boys put together. I just like yeah. that name Pet Sound. It's such a good title because there's like nothing about pets in any of this, you right, know? Right. But it like, it's just, it, it, uh, it conjures a sort of atmosphere. Definitely. Um, and I think that that's, that's, I think a group of paintings could hope to conjure that kind of like area that things can exist in. Right. Know, well, there's also, at least I took from that title, this kind of like tongue in cheek or like the, the, the duality of what is, um, you know, political speeches or messages that are given across are usually forceful or intended to persuade. Yeah. And a ballad is a heartfelt sort of love letter to someone via music. You yeah. Know? So it's kind of, you know. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm in making this group, I mean, like you couldn't make art right now that isn't about politics. <laughs> you, yeah. Just by trying not to do it, you would do it. Um, so you kind of, I was just trying to find a way where other things could exist at the same volume yeah. with the political, you know, like they're all kind of, they're all kind of, uh, equalized. Um, so I think, uh, you still have to like get through the way the thing looks to approach anything like meaning. Right. And that super interested in that, like where style meets content and the, that sort of fuzzy area where, you know, the work is about what it looks like, right. but, but then it's like, but it's still, you can't put the subject matter aside. Yeah. And you know the other thing I was interested in when I saw this show that I wanted to ask you is the I I did this collage maybe in the early two thousands of Trump Tower 
and oh, it yeah. just says Trump and it's on top of a building. It's just a little collage that I did. Yeah. And uh, I kind of put, I posted that online after the election as kind of like and put the date like this is this old thing. I don't know. It just it came up in my mind like, oh, that's really weird that I made a, a Trump collage. Yeah. And, you know, and my wife was like, do you sure you want to post that? And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, I didn't think of it that way. But you're dealing with imagery that I would imagine a lot of people have a certain feeling about like what, how does it feel to like use someone so divisive or, you know, kind of that the iconography of him in the paintings is so powerful in these. Is it something that you, what's the relationship of like, like living or not living with, but you know what I mean? Like creating those images of, of someone that's, that is so divisive. Yeah. Um, well, that's sort of what I've always done. I mean, I think like the violence in a lot of my earlier work could be seen that way. Um, that's the great challenge, right? Is to how can I turn this thing that everybody has an idea about this yeah. person into something that no one has an idea about? You know, can I make can I can I pull him back just by sort of treating him more formally? You kind of already pull back from, and there's no like in, there's no intense narrative sort of solution to those paintings. Um, I was actually tasked, I was asked, I basically, um, I've got a friend in New Yorker and I was like, you know, they've been doing all this art about him. Yeah. Um, and it's all scathing, you know, and right. really funny and brilliant. And I was like, what could we put a picture of that would be a little bit more ambiguous on the cover? Like it might be a lot, I thought that'd be a lot more subversive yeah. in a way. Um, and so, you know, that's. I had to work on those paintings long enough so that he disappeared. It's like when he finally disappeared and I knew I was close to solving the painting. Yeah. No, I mean, when yeah. I saw these paintings, they didn't take me to a, an opinion overtly. Yeah. It was more about the phenomenon of this powerful person. And yeah. I love kind of work that rides the fence. Like it's not taking that extreme position. Yeah. You're putting, you're giving the viewer some, some license to come up with it you know, their own, you know, response, their own gut response to it. And I think you did a really good job of like kind of, you know, it's a balancing act. Yeah. Talking of, about mm -hmm. the kind of uh, aggressive nature of this message or the, the, the icon and the, the image. But at the same time, um, there's so much painting stuff going on, but then it's not on one side or the other necessarily. It's the viewer can kind of, you know, go their way in the work. And yeah. I think, you know, as we learned from punk rock, if you're just giving the middle finger out there, it's easier to just say, okay, I get it, and then right. move on. Whereas I think these are pulling people in longer, and you're, you're really um, thinking about the phenomenon of, of the visual side of the effect of yeah. I mean, he's of leadership. An, he's or, an amazing specimen. You know? <laughs> I mean, he's so crazy looking. And uh, I mean, the rallies is what... Really, I went to a rally. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, which also are amazing. I mean, visual, that, beautiful that, visual things, aren't they? Like the group mind thing was. I mean, I I've, I sort of avoid crowds. It's kind of why I make paintings of rock concerts. I don't go to them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I'm like one rally, Trump rally was enough, but um, the intensity level and just the energy was like visible. It was visible. Yeah. Um, and that's what I really wanted to catch in those paintings that's that was you know that was sort of my way around the sort of central character and more because it's really not he's just an expression of a thing you know yeah. he's not the thing right and um that's sort of what and that just sort of like you know what do you deal with what is this triangular sort of crystallization going on in the painting what does that mean and, and i don't know what that means but it means something it's some sort of organization within this chaos um and uh he those paintings also, you know, they give all the rest of the paintings bite because you have yeah. to sort of deal with them in the in his shadow. Um, I'm sort of just interested in that. It makes have it you have you been getting like a response that you're finding interesting from it, or has it been more one way or the other? It um, it's been it's been good. I think the I mean, like Dan Cameron wrote something like uh, sort of liking the paintings, but wondering where I came down. And, you know, with it all. Yeah. Like, what is my position? That sort of ambiguity, I think, is a little frustrating. Oh, that can irritate yeah. people. They're like, well, yeah. it, because it seems like passiveness. And if you're doing that, you're not being responsible or something. Like yeah. That, you know, 
passiveness is like sort of a subtext of my entire life. <laughs> um, passivity is actually interesting. I, I think about the, my work in terms of that all the time. Um, but that's how I feel. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of like, wow, look at all this, you know? Right. Um, and I think what allows me to make it is that sort of sense of wonder in the in just the visual experience of it all. That, that's the sort of thing I've been chase. I chase with my, that's what, why things look the way they look right. in my work. Um, and I do think it has this like passivity is like definitely, I mean, I'm Quaker. So I went like was raised going to Quaker meeting where you sit in the room in silence for an hour yeah. and, um, you watch things happen. They have this thing called the way. And that's sort of like, you, you know, if you're having real struggles in life, what you do is you, you know, sit with yourself basically in meditation and wait for the way to open. Yeah. Um, and it involves a sort of passivity to lived experience, but with the faith in that it'll work itself out. Right. And that's like sort of how I feel about my paintings. Yeah. Like, um, it's funny that people do get irritated by, with uh, art making because art is really a place where you can be passive. You know, like you're kind of taking in visually the world. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is when people expect everyone to have a very defined critique or like how could you make that image and not draw the line or say it means this and it's it's like that's kind of the beauty of what art is is that it's vague or that it can it, other people can bring their ideas to it but yeah. some people just want it to be black and white yeah. or defined i mean I, th I think artists like they chase feelings in themselves yeah i think is what and, and uh that's by its nature kind of ambiguous you know it's ambiguous amorphous kind of thing um the more the point is hammered down, the more it becomes less about art and it just starts, you know. It's like more, a New York Times column. The more the implications are sort of ironed out, the, the less it becomes, less art, it less like art it becomes. Yeah, because yeah. we really deep down believe that there's magic in art and yeah. if you define it all, you lose the magic. Right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> well, the wonder, I like to use the word wonder. Um, yeah. And uh, like I think, I like art that makes me ask more questions than... It, you know more questions than answers yeah like definitely. My, is like what I like in my art um, do you find like not um, I mean we're the same age as we get older we're more open to those questions or more like I'll see a lot of work that maybe 10 years ago I might have shut down and just been like nope where now I'm like oh I, it, you kind of bring more to it or you're you're more willing to, to well, you of, definitely have a lot more life experience to bring right? to it yeah I mean, and Hopefully you get more generous. I feel like I get more generous as I get older. Yeah. Um, the, I don't know, I'm like watching my 13 year old daughter construct her armor, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think we all need that to get ourselves through our twenties. Right. <laughs> and then you can start taking the pieces off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you have a kid and I was like, I can take off this like, you know, pith helmet and, or, <laughs> and, uh, the, I just think that hopefully there's more of a humble approach to things. I, um, I don't know that it makes me like more art, um, but I really appreciate um, artists who leave things open. Yeah. More. Yeah. Yeah. Not even but, just liking more, but yeah. like being open to it. Yeah. Even if you hate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is naturally going to be some things that we look at that we're just like, no, nah, I'm just not into that. But yeah. nowadays I'll be like, well, what were they trying to do? You know? Right. I think, yeah. It's like, what are they getting at? Obviously, they're they're trying to get at something here. <laughs> You'd hope. One would hope. I just saw that Jeff Koons show paintings down the street. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think he's trying like, to get anywhere there. Right. I think that he's is there. Is. He's there already. <laughs> You're seeing it. There's yeah. Um, what about uh, in the studio? What do you listen to? Music, podcasts, audiobooks. Audiobooks. In that order, yeah, a lot of audiobooks. Um, like this show, I was listening to like old Louis L'Amour. Westerns. Oh yeah. I like get books that are kind of about what I'm making. Oh nice. So it um, adds like a kind of a narrative. Yeah. It just, you know, add, you know, I always love those stories about like Corbet, like bringing the body parts home to his studio so he could like paint from dead corpses, you know, like just as a way to kind of like juice his atmosphere in yeah. the studio. So in sort of keeping with that, I try to do that in my studio too. So, right. Um, uh, podcasts I do, the political ones, all those crooked media yeah. podcasts. And then I, you know, Mark Maron, I've been listening to for like nine years now, I guess. Um, and Slayer. <laughs> some Slayer. <laughs> My son loves Slayer. You want to watch an eight year old 
his eyes light up, puts some Slayer on for him. Amazing, right? Because <laughs> he's like, those are the monsters that I've been telling you about. Because yeah, yeah. he just hears it. Um, they like they just connect. My son's in a band and he plays Metallica and stuff. Cool. And they just, you know, Metallica at this point, you're like, oh yeah. Kind of pops music. <laughs> yeah, like older guys or pop or whatever. Yeah. But they hear that stuff and it does something. It's you know? the energy. Yeah. They're just super tuned in to the energy. Yeah. And, uh, I think they can read too that there's a middle finger there. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, it's not punk, but it's punk in a way, you know, it's, yeah. it's just not what people want you to be listening to. It's, well, certainly a lot of it's very angry. Yeah. Um, it can be frustrating to be an eight year old boy. I think yeah. <laughs> this is like, you're learning, you know, how to constrain yourself all day. Yeah. But you're just being told nothing, but like, don't do that. Don't do that. Clean yeah. that up. Don't do that. Right. Yeah, it's really sucks. Yeah. Here's some Legos, <laughs> right. which he loves, but you know, come on. Yeah, it's every, a little organized. You have that too. Yeah, like I have a room in our apartment that is just a Lego bomb. Yeah, he off. makes he makes sets, so he makes his own sets. Oh, that's puts cool. Them in boxes. Has he done the stop motion stuff with it? No. You know how they can do like the iPad will have a program that will do stop motion, and they can no. make Minecraft or Lego. Oh movies. my god, he'd love that. He wants to be a Minecraft movie, I and mean, that's what he wants to be when he grows up. Oh yeah, he wants to make Minecraft movies. Yeah, I think it's the way of our kids. He's a big drawer too, like I was. He draws exactly the same way I did, which is like all action. Doesn't really care about the, what things look like. Yeah, it's yeah. just the story. Um, and uh, he draws pictures of the games that he plays. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. my son draws Pokemon all the time. <laughs> yeah, like he draws the characters. And stuff. Yeah, that's cool. I guess that's where you get your start. You know. Yeah, he's definitely an artist. You can tell when you because my daughter's not. She's gonna be like an engineer. Yeah, it's like the other side of the coin. Right. Um, but he. The way he can live and the things that he's making is like a telltale sign. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, the map is laid out. The people who, the kids who are like really concerned with drawing right are probably not, not artists. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kids who don't care what it looks like who are just like fully there that you're like, okay. Yeah. I used to think my son wasn't like going to be an artist, but I don't know. He makes these action drawings that are basically maps of battles and stuff like that. Yeah. And they look like, like uh, drawings like Nathan Carter drawings or something, yeah. you know? And, um, but he, he used to be really worried that they're messy or that they don't look good. I was like, maybe actually, actually perfect because he does want to do all the action and he has some guilt that it's not good enough. Which yeah. I think we are. That's kind of perfect. <laughs> maybe that's the exact roadmap of yeah. like being an artist. Um, we, I mean, back in lower school when we at lunch, I would do these like battle drawings where I would draw like all my tanks on one side of the piece of paper and my friend would draw all his yeah. tanks on the other side you could take a sharp pencil point and you put the point down at the end of the gun barrel and press the top and it would just kind of skip across uh, the yeah, page and yeah. you get that line right um that's like that's that's basically what i do now <laughs> it's just like watching this thing unfold in front of you yeah um and that's what he does um and because uh, otherwise art can be pretty boring if you're not like right you know like if you're not in it like that it's um crap you know can be kind of craftsmanship. Yeah. Um, which, you know, can be pretty, but you know, not nourishing. I don't right. Know. Yeah. And there's so many of these where I talk to people and they, we come into the realization that like you're a lot of times making art, you're just trying to connect to a feeling you had when you were younger Yeah. where you felt free or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just trying to hold on to that Yeah. or tap into it. Yeah. Which is a beautiful thing. A I mean, those were the best times. Yeah. I mean, do you remember the day where your toys weren't magic anymore? Where you yeah. couldn't make them live anymore? Right. I think about that moment all the time where, like, you know, these action figures all of a sudden are just plastic. Yeah. Like, yeah. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you refind it on canvas. And After, you know, graduate school, 30 years of, like, you know, Benjamin Buclo. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in it, kids. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun career. Um, so how long is the show up? Um, this is the last week. Last it's week. been up since March 1st. It's a nice thing they've done here. Is they have seven shows a year, so the shows get to be up for six weeks. Yeah. Which is a nice, it's much, five weeks always felt too short. This feels kind right. of right. You do all that work, it's nice that you have that extra time. Right? Yeah. People can check it out. Yeah. And then people can see your work online, I'm sure. Yes. Like website. The galleries, websites Gallery. are good. Victoria Miro. Uh, gallery in London has another select has another you know alternate selection of works. Um, Are you un um, interested in social media, or do you take part in that stuff? Um, I have a 
often neglected Facebook uh-huh. account, which I did um, post some stuff for the show. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of smaller reviews, like this, like Dan Cameron wrote this thing, yeah. and included some pictures. Like you can see, like you know, since the New York Times only writes what four reviews a week now, um, yeah. that this sort of feedback thing is definitely coming from face more, oh. more from Facebook than it is from the traditional. Yeah, it's weird, right? Media totally outlets. changed. Yeah. Like I don't does our forum even? I mean, <laughs> all you know, all these magazines may may not be long for this world, right? Um, Times are changing. Yeah, so um, it's confusing. I mean, I, Chelsea, like we were talking about before, this feels like a completely different thing now. Yeah, um, I don't really understand how the art world works right now. Um, it seems to me it's in a pretty precarious place, right? Because um, they. It, they just hyped it. Art and money had just been so tight. Like Sherry Salt says, they've been having sex, you know, for so long that they've sort of lost the nourishing part. Right. And, I, and with all the art fairs and stuff, I think I even sense it from the collectors are kind of like enough, enough already. What, yeah. What, but it can't. They can't stop it. Yeah. You know? This is good though. This podcast idea. This is sort of what's more what's needed. I think in the in the art world. In general. I hope so. Um, Add a little warmth to the equation. Exactly. A little like, candlelight to that relationship. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or some I, reality, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I had my studio on 25th street here in Chelsea and it was like, I was in the belly of the beast. And, um, so I've been sort of using this metaphor of like, it's like, we all just need to go home now. Yeah. <laughs> Can we all go home? Like, so I moved my studio literally back into my home and it, it's much better. Yeah. Um, it's much better. The sort of, um, hyper professionalism of the whole industry you know, the grad school to gallery connection. Like I got, I was, I joined this gallery before I graduated um, graduate school. Yeah. Like at the end of my first year of graduate school, Marianne came and offered me a place here. Um, and that was sort of the first that anyone had heard. I mean, it happened a little bit like Yale sculpture had some things like that going on. Mm-hmm. Like people were just going, I think Matthew, Bar- Matthew Barney might've been the first it was like a student who basically like got into David Zwerner before he was, finished school yeah um it didn't happen before and so i just kind of got plucked up into like the commercial aspect right away and i sort of lost that other sort of sense of community part um so i'm sort of maybe looking to teach somewhere yeah i haven't done that yet um i love it yeah yeah it, it brings a different energy and you know it's you you're seeing people catch that fire you know yeah. that you had when you were in the studio that's a good feeling yeah you know before it's it's been kind of like you know wrung out <laughs> gone through the ringer of of the reality of the art world i guess or something but yeah. there's something nice about that early magic and, and energy yeah it kind of feeds you if you if you do it right i think i i miss i mean i had uh, my friend sue de beer brought her students through to see the show and i talked to them and it was just like I'm not around kids who are 20, you know, yeah. I'm around like eight year olds, 12 year olds <laughs> and like 40 year olds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just nice to, to feel that sort of the world is new again. Kind yeah, of feeling. It's different, right? Yeah. I could use a little of that. Um, this is the, I've been showing now for 20 years, which is yeah. like, just blows my mind. Yeah. We don't have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, I'm proud of it. I'm really, I'm, um, I like all the work that I've made and that it's there. Something very um, supportive about all that work. Yeah. <laughs> um, never really thought about it before, but um, it, it uh, uh, something to, um, it, it feels like an accomplishment to me now. This, you know why you feel good about it too? Is because all the work's really good. <laughs> I hope so. I took some risks there too. You know, like I, I feel like I, I've, I've tried other things and uh, this show has been great because it's sort of like, it's very much like back to what I, I became known for. Yeah. And it, um, it's good to know that that's still there. Right. And um, then fed by all that experience, but, but with all this, reconnecting. those, like those sort of, those sort of left turns I took, um, are all sort of being brought to bear now. And it's yeah. sort, of, sort of whole, whole way. Um, and that well, feels good. I hadn't shown in three years, so you know, every anytime you take a break that long, you always wonder if like you still exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is this thing on? Like after like three? Yeah. Years? <laughs> oh yeah. And you I mean, still you know, spent like eight months in my studio getting ready to do this show, wondering if 
when I started if it was going to work, yeah. <laughs> which is hard. <laughs> That's maybe the hardest thing with being an artist is like, it's best to just not stop because starting can be right. so hard. Um, um, cause you, you know, you wonder if you'll find it, find yourself again. And it took like eight months of like torture essentially going to the studio and just staring at things. Um, it's like stand up. Like when you take yeah. a break, you have to go back on the road and get that material going. Yeah. You know, it's like a similar thing. It's like, is this going to be, <laughs> who am I? Well, you first, I mean, it's three years is long. I've been showing every seven months yeah. for up to that break. Um, and you know, the, so I've made like two paintings in like nine months and then I made the rest of the show in two months <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden, because like all of a sudden you're there and you're, you're the damn broke. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's enormously reassuring that that happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, I could still do it. Yeah. It, it sounds funny, but it's sort of, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's yeah. a sort of core issue. Right. Um, I think in the creative, in the creative life, um, cause I don't think you ever really know how, it, where it comes from and why it works. There's always sort of a doubt that it might not come again. Yeah. Um, that's sort of persistent anxiety. That I've sort of, that's that magic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for meeting me today. Yeah. It was great to talk to you. The show looks great. Thank you. It's up for another week. I'm not exactly sure when this will go up, but people can, people have seen your work and they'll see it. So. Yeah. That's cool. But yeah, man, thanks a lot for meeting me. Yeah. Thank you. Sound and Vision is recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can follow Sound and Vision on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast, and you can find the podcast, more information, and images I take from the podcasts at soundandvisionpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation of any amount on the webpage. The intro music and the introduction was lended by Michael Lovett of the band Nazca Lines. You can catch Michael moonlighting in the band Metronomy. The artist introduction music and outro music was provided by Lullatone. For more information about myself and my artwork, check out my website, paintchanger.com, or find my work at Miles McHenry Gallery in New York City, Maho Kubota Gallery in Tokyo, Hezi Cohen Gallery in Tel Aviv, and Studio La Chita Gallery in Verona. Thank you for listening. <laughs>